On John Lennon's birthday, a few words about war. Why pacifists aren't fascists. John Lennon was born on October 9, 1940. He would have been 82 today. In 1972, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond sent a letter to the office of Attorney General John Mitchell, suggesting Lennon be deported. Thurmond believed Lennon's anti-war and anti-Nixon views would spread in rock concerts and festivals and cited a confidential source in saying, if Lennon's visa is terminated, it would be a strategy countermeasure. Mitchell's deputy sent a letter to the immigration commissioner asking if there was any basis to deport Lennon. A court battle ended with a judge named Irvin Kaufman striking down his deportation, writing, Lennon's four-year battle to remain in our country is a testimony to his faith in this American dream. Though I'm more a fan of Strawberry Fields than Kumbaya anthems like Imagine and Give Peace a Chance, I figured someone ought to say a word or two in defense of nonviolence on John Lennon's birthday. Targeted by the hated Richard Nixon administration in 1972, Lennon today would be denounced across the spectrum, thanks to a new, relentless public relations campaign equating peace advocacy with fascism, Putinism, Trumpism, even terrorism. The term fascist, lifted from the World War II era and an old essay by George Orwell, has been revived and is suddenly very visible on social media. The pertinent passage from Orwell's 1942 Pacifism in the War reads, Pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. This is elementary common sense. If you hamper the war effort of one side, you automatically help that of the other. The idea that you can somehow remain aloof from and superior to the struggle, while living on food which British sailors have to risk their lives to bring you, is a bourgeois illusion bred of money and security. Writer James Kerchick recently made the same point in The Atlantic. How the anti-war camp went intellectually bankrupt reads like an epitaph for anti-war thinking. Citing the same Orwell essay, Kerchick denounces the motley collection of voices pushing restraint after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ranging from anti-imperialists on the left to isolationists on the right and more respectable realists in between, these critics are not pacifists in the strict sense of the term. Few, if any, oppose the use of force as a matter of principle, but nor are they neutral. It is not sufficient, they say, for the West to cut off its supply of defensive weaponry to Ukraine. It must also atone for provoking Russia to attack its smaller, peaceful, democratic neighbor and work at finding a resolution that satisfies what Moscow calls its legitimate security interests. In this, today's anti-war caucus is objectively pro-fascist. To these people, humanity is perennially stuck in 1938, after Hitler annexed the Sudetenland. At that critical moment, much celebrated in American and British film and literature, there was a split in the West. On one side sat the Churchills of the world, brave sages who saw what was coming and scrambled to act appropriately. On the other side sat the pacifists. They weren't merely mistaken about the future. That would be too kind an assessment. Whether consciously or unconsciously, they were villains rooting for fascist victory. Even Orwell decried the psychological processes by which pacifists who have started out with an alleged horror of violence end up with a marked tendency to be fascinated by the success and power of Nazism. Kerchick's essay, which denounces everyone from Ron Paul to Grayzone to Noam Chomsky to John Mearsheimer, I'd probably be on the list if Kerchick considered me worth the trouble, echoes a similar assessment. It's argued that underneath all the isolationist or anti-imperialist bluster, 
Realists are more like collaborationists, with a secret, barely submerged desire to see foreign tyranny win. This is also how writers from the Brookings Institute saw things in an October 3rd article. U.S. podcasters spread Kremlin narratives on Nord Stream sabotage, which deemed all those skeptical that Russia blew up its own Nord Stream pipeline Kremlin messengers. The Brookings thesis is that all was well until a September 27th episode of Tucker Carlson's show on Fox, which pointed the finger at Washington. Carlson's show, Brookings argued, inspired 16 different podcasts to promote the conspiracy theory that the United States was behind the blasts, despite the fact that experts broadly agree that Russia is the key suspect. They even made a graph virtually depicting the spread of the Kremlin pacifist virus. Once again, anti-war sentiment is seen as an outgrowth of privilege, naivete about how the world works, and sympathy. Thanks for listening to the free version of this article. To hear the full version, and for more articles and content, please subscribe at taibi.substack.com.